Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. It's June 12th, and you're with a virtual City Club forum live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream, our public media partner to whom we are very grateful. Cash bail is probably one of the most misunderstood procedures of the American criminal justice system, and arguably it's also one of the most inequitable. After an arrest, uh, the wealthy can typically pay bail and walk free, while low-income Americans facing the same or similar charges and bail amounts will often spend weeks or months in jail awaiting their day in court and often feel pressured to plead guilty. As a result, cash bail has become a key driver of mass incarceration, accounting for 99% of all jail growth in the past 20 years. The Bail Project hopes to change that. Launched in 2018, the organization provides free bail assistance and pre-trial support to thousands of low-income people every year. It now has offices in 21 cities, including an office in Cleveland, Ohio, that opened in August of last year. Currently, the Bail Project is using its existing infrastructure to provide free bail assistance and support to people arrested at demonstrations who can't afford bail. Today, we'll talk about what bail is, the work of the Bail Project, and the larger reforms our criminal justice system might need at this moment, as well as the structural impediments to these reforms. Before I introduce our speaker, I want to thank our generous member sponsors and donors who support our virtual forums during the pandemic. For a full list, you can visit cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them also by supporting our work and making a contribution or becoming a member at cityclub.org. Today's forum is also sponsored by City Club members Holly and Rob Martins. We are very deeply grateful for their support of City Club programming. Now to our speaker, Robin Steinberg. She's founder and CEO of The Bail Project. Over a 35-year career as a public defender, she has represented thousands of low-income people in over-policed neighborhoods and founded three organizations, the Bronx Defenders, the Bronx Freedom Fund, which the Bail Project is modeled after, and Still She Rises, which is the first public defender office in the nation dedicated exclusively to the defense of women facing the criminal justice system. Ms. Steinberg is also the Gilbert Foundation Senior Fellow of Criminal Justice of the Criminal Justice Program at UCLA's School of Law. And uh, full disclosure, Ms. Steinberg and I discovered last week that our careers had overlapped at the Neighborhood Defender Service in New York City in the 1990s. Now, as in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Just text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794 to text your questions, or you can tweet them if you're on Twitter. Just tweet them at the City Club, and we'll work them into the forum. Robin Steinberg, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. It is great to have you. Um, tell us the Bail Project story. Sure. So I spent, as you said, my career as a public defender, um, defending individuals in the criminal legal system as they were facing the enormous power of government that was coming to try to take their freedom from them. And I fought for every single individual client as hard as I could. Um, I even, as you also alluded to, 
thought we can do public defense in a better way. And I, after many years being a frontline public defender, um, along with other people, founded the Bronx Defenders and created a new model of public defense, thinking that must be the answer. If we just could create a public defender office that could deal with all the intersection of all the systems that we found our clients locked in, whether it was family court or immigration or housing or the criminal legal system, that surely would be the answer. Um, and so, you know, over 21 years, I ran the Bronx Defenders and developed this, what I would consider gold standard of public defense um, in a holistic defender model, um, training the best of the best public defenders, the most passionate young public defenders that I could find anywhere in the nation. And sometimes what I realized was it, it no matter how hard we tried and how hard we fought and how vigorous and zealous our defense was, that it all boiled down to money. That, that if you had the $500 to pay your bail, um, you know, you could go home and fight your case from a position of freedom. But if you did not, you were going to remain in a jail cell. And um, that made my blood boil. It was the most obvious creation of a two-tier system of justice I'd ever seen. Um, it was clear that the impact of cash bail um, was particularly onerous and really was on the backs of low-income Americans and particularly brown and black Americans, uh, where judges set bail in higher amounts and they're less likely to be able to make it. Um, and so I think about bail as the oil that sort of keeps this machine running. Um, and that if we can somehow intervene at that level, we might be able to actually work towards real systemic change. So when was the bail project born? So the bail project was born, interestingly, um, in 2005, my husband David and I um, were talking about the horrors of bail that we saw and the injustice of it. And uh, he said, you know, we should be able to just pay people's bail. Maybe we could just like start paying people's bail. And we began to sort of talk about that over uh, Chinese takeout and um, in New York City, where every good thing happens. And, um, and all of a sudden it occurred to us, well, since bail money comes back at the end of a case, what if we created a revolving bail fund and we put money into a fund and we began to pay people's bail? Um, what would happen? How, how would that operate? Could we actually make a dent in this obvious moment of injustice in the criminal legal system? Um, and so for two years, we tried to find funding from 2005 to 2007 and had a million doors slammed in our face. Um, people thought it was a crazy idea. Maybe it was. Um, but finally, we found one person, Jason Flom and his father, Joe, the late Joe Flom, who were willing to give us a check for $100,000 to create the Bronx Freedom Fund, this very small revolving bail fund. Now, look, people have put together their money for generations to bail their loved ones out. There have been bail funds that were you know, designed to respond to a particular moment, but we didn't really ever see a model of a revolving fund that was meant to um, be able to bail uh, a person, at, people out over and over again in a given community. And we certainly had never seen anybody think about how do you track what happens to people when you're able to intervene at that level. So we set up the Bronx Freedom Fund and we began to bail people out. And people thought, uh, you know, I, I was warned by everybody, you know, you're never going to get your money back. People aren't going to come back to court. This is a crazy idea. Um, why would they come back to court if they don't have anything on the line? But David and I had a sense, having worked with our clients for so many years, that people would come back to court um, because it's better to come back to court, because it's in your best interest to come back to court, and because clients will listen to the judges when they're told to come back to court. So we took the chance, took the gamble, and began paying bail with this philanthropy um, and tracked the data over 10 years. And what we saw was astounding. 
uh, it surprised even us. Um, and we saw 95% of our clients came back for every single court date. So that was the first thing that smashed the myth that cash was the incentive that made people come back to court. Turns out it has nothing to do with cash. Um, so our entire cash bail system is built on that myth. But the thing that we also saw that was really surprising was the downstream impact. So you pay somebody's bail and then they can fight their case. Um, and what we saw in the Bronx was over half the cases got dismissed when we paid people's bail, which told us a lot about how the system was operating. And of course we knew getting people out of jail um, would help you know, protect them against the harms that happen in a jail cell. Uh, physical violence, sexual violence, your mental health um, is affected, your physical health is affected. Um, it's a traumatic experience to be in jail and you carry that trauma with you forever. But also your life outside falls apart, right? Your, your kids can get taken away, you can get evicted, you can lose your job, you can get kicked out of school, your immigration status can be jeopardized. So we began to see sort of when you got out and when bail was paid, you not only avoided those devastating negative consequences to you and your family and your community, but you had better case outcomes. Um, and it was from that proof of concept over 10 years, from 2007 to 2017, that we thought we have to take this to the national level. We have to scale this. We can't just do this in the South Bronx. It has to scale nationally and test the theory um, and see what we can do uh, in terms of reimagining a pretrial justice system without cash bail. We're talking with Robin Steinberg, founder and CEO of The Bail Project, which has about nine months of work that it, under its belt here in Cleveland. The, uh, you're with the City Club Friday Forum, broadcasting from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. I want to um, come back to something that you said that 95% of people in your, in your first pilot were showing back up for court. Does that, uh, does that mirror data for people who aren't involved with The Bail Project that or is that a better rate of return? It's a much higher rate of return. Um, and what we really learned from that and we're continuing to see at the Bail Project um, is that it all boils down to um, our folks being given effective court reminders about when to come back to court. Um, you know, these systems are archaic and they've been operating in the same way forever. And so um, letters may or may not go out from the system that tells people when their next court date is with no regard for the kind of housing insecurity that people have, the kind of movements in their lives. So simply by providing effective court reminders, which we did by phone calls, text and sometimes social media, um, people are able to get back to court. But the other thing we see is people almost never don't come back to court intentionally. It is almost always related to a life circumstance that happened. So that could be anything from, I don't have enough money to get to court. Um, and then you, we can intervene and help get that person a ride or get them a Metro card if they were in New York City. Or it could be that there's been a healthcare crisis in their family or their boss told them, if you miss one more day of work to go there to court, I'm gonna fire you. And so those kinds of obstacles are really what prevent most people from coming back to court. The systems look at failures to appear and they fail to recognize and distinguish between an intentional failure to appear, which is extraordinarily rare and a failure to appear that was the result of what happens when people are living in poverty on the edge and circumstances come up and obstacles are created that prevent them from being able to come back from court. Your kid is homesick. Your judges said you can't bring your children to the courthouse. What do you do? 
right? You can't, you're not going to leave your child alone. You're going to miss your court date. So it's those kinds of circumstances. So what we've learned is if you actually can engage with clients and help them solve those obstacles and give effective court reminders, people will come back and they'll come back almost all the time. This feels like a good time to remind people as well that um, the people you're talking about, the people you're serving, have not been found guilty of a crime. That is something that people um, often forget, right? Which is that we operate our entire criminal legal system on the presumption of innocence. And that presumption is supposed to be wrapped around you from the moment you're arrested until the moment you finish your case. And you can finish your case by a plea of guilty or by going to trial, right? But that in that period of time, you have yet to be convicted of anything. And yet that is the moment when cash bail gets set and you can be incarcerated before conviction. Um, people sort of fail to remember that, and it becomes significant when you see the kinds of dismissal rates that we see in our 21 different cities across the country when you pay bail, how many of those cases get dismissed. And how many, are, how many get dismissed? Well, so in Cleveland, what I can tell you is of the 213 people that have been bailed out, we have seen a third of um, all of the charges being dismissed for a third of the clients, right? So that tells you a lot. Right? That means that one out of three clients that came into the criminal legal system had no business being there in the first place. Those cases got dismissed. Some of the places we're operating in, that number is as high as 56% of all the charges get dismissed. Um, and so it tells us a lot about over-policing. It tells us a lot about the over-policing of communities of color in this country. Uh, it tells you a lot about how we have widened this net and ensnared people in our criminal legal system that have no business being there and never should have been brought in to begin with. What is the lesson that you think policymakers should take from that data in terms of so, a new policy to implement? Sure. I mean, that's a much bigger question about how we operate in this country and how we have expanded our police departments in city after city from one end of the country to the next, despite the fact that we have seen crime rates fall consistently year after year, decade after decade, we have actually expanded police forces. We have actually put more money into police forces and we have um, created an environment where entire communities around this country that are communities of color and low income communities who feel as if the police have occupied their communities, um, that they are being over-policed for conduct that is happening in every community, but is only being policed in theirs, um, which leads to a real sense of unfairness, um, leads to a real sense of injustice. Um, and, you know, the racism that is built into a system of policing that is targeting some communities over others cannot be ignored, and it cannot be ignored any longer. Um, we need to downsize police. We need to downsize the police force, frankly. I want to take a step back um, towards the beginning of um, our system. Mm -hmm. Why do we have bail? <laughs> so the theory, this is the irony, the theory about cash bail was that cash bail was actually supposed to be something that enabled you to get out of jail. The theory was it was a, it was a mechanism of release. Um, and so what the belief was, was if you just set bail at an amount somebody could pay, it would be enough for them to put the money down and that would create the incentive for them to come back to court. 
Um, it's, it's an interesting theory and in some intuitive way makes a little bit of sense. Well, somebody has something on the line, so they'll come back to court. But in fact, what we know based on the data, not just from the Bronx Freedom Fund for 10 years, but now the national data that we're collecting across the country is that cash has nothing to do with it. And that all cash has turned out to be is a mechanism to hold low income people um, in jail cells who haven't been convicted of crimes, and that that disproportionately falls on the backs of black and brown communities in this country. There are those who would say that the that the community benefits from the bail system because, quote, bad actors are not out on the street. Um, who actually benefits from the bail system? Ah. So, you know, the first thing I remind people of is that bad actors, it hasn't been determined yet whether people have committed the crime they're charged with or not. Um, and that, you know, people tend to write that off, but it is goes to the fundamental heart of our criminal legal system. Um, you are supposed to be presumed innocent regardless of race and class, and that is not what happens anymore. Um, it's also important to remember, before I get to sort of who benefits, it's also important to remember how much this system of cash bail is costing the American taxpayers. Of course, it is costing the individuals locked in those jail cells and their families and communities the most, you know, unconscionable cost to those folks. But it is important for your listeners to remember that, that it costs $14 billion annually to incarcerate people on cash bail before they've been convicted of a crime. And so we might want to think in a moment that we are thinking about diminished um, economic returns when we're thinking about economies really being strained as a result of COVID, whether we really want to be spending $14 billion annually holding people in jail cells who have been convicted of a crime. But the beneficiaries of cash bail, obviously there is a cash, there's cash bail um, has propped up a bail bond industry in this country, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and so there is a profit motive that has been built into, um, you know, having an industry that preys on the backs of poor people um, who can't pay their cash bail and basically says, if your family can come up with the 10%, give me that fee, I'll keep that fee, um, and then I will get you out of jail. So um, that's one way that the cash bail system has actually enriched um, some folks. Um, the other thing that cash bail has done more importantly when you think about it is it really is, you know, what keeps our criminal legal system running. It really is the oil that keeps that machine going. And the reason is the experience of being in jail is so terrifying and so dehumanizing and so violent and so horrific that when faced with the opportunity to get out, if you simply plead guilty, people will plead guilty to what they're charged with, whether they did it or they didn't do it. And so cash bail has actually enabled our criminal legal system to churn millions and millions and millions of people through our criminal legal system every year, offering them a plea bargain to allow them a way to get home to safety. So bail is the coercive lever that gets people to plead guilty. And then people plead guilty and yes, they get to go home, but now they have to deal with having a criminal conviction that will follow them for the rest of their lives as a kind of perpetual punishment that will pervade barriers for jobs and future and upward economic mobility. Um, so, you know, cash bail has all sorts of negative and devastating consequences, and it's costing all of us. To come back to the cost to taxpayers that you mentioned, um, the annual cost, the last time I saw data on this, the annual cost for incarceration is somewhere between thirty and $40,000 per year per inmate, and it may be more in some places. Um, there is a vernacular 
part of the the, the vernacular in the Cleveland community is that um, if you are not paying bail, you are quote sitting thirty. You sit thirty. Thirty days is the sort of standard. Um, it's so much the vernacular that it was used in the state of the schools last year uh, by our, our school CEO Eric Gordon. He referred to you know families where a parent is sitting thirty, um, and so. Uh, people who are smarter than me can do the math to figure out the per day rate, uh, the per day cost to taxpayers of um, people who are incarcerated but not guilty. Um, and that seems like a really significant bit of public dollars. It is, it is a huge amount of public dollars. I am even struck by the phrase sitting 30. I'm struck by the casualness of that. I'm struck by the acceptance of the norm that that must mean that people have a phrase that they've developed um, and what that means that people are just going to sit there 30. Um, it's a sort of reflection of the kind of indifference that we have about incarcerating people. And in large measure, that's related to the fact that the people we're incarcerating um, are predominantly black and brown and from low-income communities. Um, and there has been a blind eye turned to the devastation and the violence uh, and the tragedy that being locked in our criminal legal system causes to those folks and to their families and to their communities. Um, when uh, when we think about bail, it is it is sort of so deeply entrenched in the American sort of criminal justice narrative, the the television shows that many watch on tel- uh, uh, that many are familiar with, um, and I but it we think it very normal. Yet as I understand it, bail is not cash bail is not a thing in most other industrialized nations. Yeah, so cash bail does exist in some places. We actually uh, got an email two days ago at the Bail Project from a criminal defense lawyer in Johannesburg in South Africa um, who was talking about the exact same dynamic, that his clients were being held in on cash bail, that they were being forced to plead guilty because it was the only way to get out. So it certainly does exist, but it is a uniquely American problem. And it has been, as you said in your introduction, the driver of mass incarceration in this country for decades. Um, And so... You know, when we think about uh, eliminating cash bail, it's really important for us to remember that there are other ways of doing this. There are other ways to thinking about pretrial justice and that has nothing to do with dollar amounts and nothing to do with then creating a two-tier system of justice, one for people who have money and one for people without. What are the other ways? And you mentioned some earlier in terms of communicating court dates in um, in the ways that we all communicate today rather than mail, which may or may not actually find the intended recipient. What else? So look, you know, when we think about pre-trial, I could talk about the pre-trial justice system, I meaning from the time you're arrested to the time your case closes. If we're just thinking about that moment in time, there should be the presumption of release, right? What's happened instead, right, is that judges have set bail in amounts that people can't afford to pay. And you have to remember, most Americans across this country don't have money in their savings account to pay for an emergency, right? And so when you think about judges setting cash bail in an amount people can't pay, right, you see the consequences of that. So what we should be doing is is that, so it becomes the norm that you're held in jail on bail rather than the norm being a presumption that you are released. It should be that pretrial detention being held in a jail cell before incarcerate, before conviction should be the very rare exception, not the norm, but it's become completely distorted and cash bail has allowed um, incarceration before conviction to be the norm rather than freedom um, to be the norm before you're convicted. 
We mentioned earlier the structure that we would discuss, the structural impediments. Um, what are they? So look, you know, we have developed a criminal legal system and a cash bail system in this country that has existed for a long time. Systems do not go down without a fight. They will fight for their lives. And you know that. And even when you think you're making some reforms in a system, the danger is always if you're not incredibly vigilant about what you're replacing one system with for another system is you may recreate the same racial and economic inequities that the system had all along. So we see that happening in jurisdictions around the country where they may replace pretrial incarceration with putting a GPS angle monitor on somebody that they then force the accused to pay for the privilege of being surveilled 24 hours a day. Um, they have to pay for the setup. They have to pay for uh, the daily fees. And there, right there, you have recreated the same, right, two-tier system of justice, one who can pay for it and one who can't pay for it. Um, and so it's really important that we remain really vigilant about how we reimagine our system um, if we were able to eliminate cash bail and um, how we grapple with some of the issues that it raises. But it's very, very important that we remember that the danger is always there that when we're going to recreate the same inequities. And so we have to be really, really careful about that. We're talking with Robin Steinberg. She's founder and CEO of The Bail Project. And you can text your question for her to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Or if you're on Twitter, tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work your question in. Robin, what about the bail bonds industry? That is a, 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 significant, um, a significant industry. Many people perceive it to be sort of mom and pop shops who are trying to help people out. Um, how do you see it? I think we've just lost. Robin, are you there? We seem to have lost Robin. Um, oh, you there know, you are. Look, the okay. bail bond industry grew out of a need. We've got you. Ugh, no, we've got you. Me. No, we've got you, Robin. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Oh, sorry yeah, about that. That's okay. Go ahead. Hold on. All right. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah. So It's important. Yeah, sure. No, you it's go, ahead. go ahead. To, yeah, it's important to remember that the bail bond industry grew out of a need, right? It, it grew up. Okay. It's, do you want to ask a question again? So the, the question is, I, I, as I said before, the, many people perceive the bail bonds industry and bail bonds, bail bondsmen's to bail bonds shops to be kind of mom and pop shops helping out the community. How do you see that industry? Well, look, the industry is, um, it, there may be mom and pop shops, but the industry itself is a multi-billion dollar industry that's backed by the insurance companies in this country. Um, it is important to say, look, the bail bond industry grew out of a need, right? Once cash bail became the thing that was holding people in jail rather than the form of release it was intended to be, there was this gaping need that people in low-income communities had to try to get their loved ones out. When they couldn't put together enough money to do it, when they couldn't, you know, call their aunts and their grandmas and 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 raise, you know, um, money in their own communities to get people out, they would turn to the bail bond industry because people are desperate to get their loved ones out of a terrible experience. And um, and so that is the need that the bail bond industry was filling. But in fact, what it's turned out to do is be a kind of predatory business that is um, taking money and making profit off the backs of people that are struggling to make ends meet, are struggling to pay their rent, are struggling to put food on the table for their children. And in that way, it's unconscionable and, um, and it's unnecessary.
that's the other thing, is if what we've learned is that cash bail isn't what has people come back to court, you don't need to have money on the line, right? We know that from the work that we've been doing, then there's no need for it at all. Um, and so the industry is not only unconscionable, it's not only unseemly and maybe even immoral, it is also unnecessary, as is cash bail. Could you explain a little bit more the connection between the bail bonds industry and the larger in, and the large insurance companies in our nation? Um, no, just that, you know, there is um, a deep investment that insurance companies have in backing the bail bond industry. Um, and so it is not just mom and pop shops. It is a large system that is backed by very powerful forces that have very strong economic interests in keeping the cash bail system operating in this country so that profit can be made. As I said before, we're speaking with Robin Steinberg. She's founder and CEO of The Bail Project. You can text your questions for Robin to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can tweet them at the City Club, and we'll work them into the program. Robin, uh, one of the first questions in asks, given what you've said about bail, shouldn't we be working at least long-term to abolish it rather than perpetuating the system by participating in it? Absolutely correct. Um, and here's what we say at The Bail Project. We are working day in and day out to put ourselves out of business. And I mean that quite literally. Um, we are a national not-for-profit, um, but what our goal is long-term is to end cash bail, to put ourselves out of business, and to ensure that you never need a bail fund anywhere again. Um, so that is exactly right. The issue really is we have people sitting in jail cells right now and there's a humanitarian crisis and that has to be dealt with. It's not enough for us all to sit around and say, well, let's try to reimagine a system without cash bail, right? Which we should be doing and need to be doing and needs to be happening every single day. But while we're having these conversations, while this change is hopefully moving forward, you still have people locked in jail cells across this country. Right? You have 2.5 million people who are affected by cash bail every year, and they need a lifeline to get out now. Right? So bail funds are a tool to sort of deal with that immediate crisis, that emergency, right? that moral calling to get people out of jail cells is what bail funds can do right now. But of course, the ultimate goal right, is to eliminate cash bail so that you never need to have a bail fund again, and we can eliminate it. Has that happened anywhere in the United States? So... Yeah, so our model is to create a national portfolio of bail funds around the country that are supported by our infrastructure. Um, and we've been doing that, you know, for the past two and a half years since we launched um, in New York, which was where the proof of concept started at the Bronx Freedom Fund. I am delighted to report that we are exiting New York. Um, it is the first place we have put ourselves out of business. Um, and that is because in January of this year, New York State passed bail reform that was very significant, um, that did away with cash bail for m most um, of the low-level crimes that you're allowed to pay bail for in New York. Um, and so what we saw right away was this was the perfect example of using the data we had been collecting in New York, along with other grassroots organizations and people who were very engaged in this advocacy, using the data and the human stories and persuading policymakers and local elected officials and, and um, other folks in the legal system to move bail reform forward, which they did. And so we are delighted to be able to close our doors um, and delighted to be able to say that while I don't think uh, the bill is perfect in New York, 
it is, it's gone very, very far to eliminating cash bail for most charges. Um, and that will increase the sort of decarceration strategy that New York City and New York has been on for years now. So we're delighted to be able to say we're exiting New York. I hope to be able to report someday that we're exiting Cleveland. Uh, before you do, though, you have uh, only nine months into Cleveland. Can you describe how that work actually happens? You have hired a group of people call, whose job sure. title is bail disruptor. Sure. So the way we operate our national not-for-profit is um, we have local teams in each of the cities that we're operating in. Those local teams are staffed by people who are from the community they're working in, they're committed to the community they're working in, and they're committed to forwarding justice in their own communities. Um, in Cleveland, we're lucky enough to have Anthony Bodie and Kareem Hinton doing the work um, on the ground, leading the work on the ground. Um, and what they do is they interview people in jail, uh, they pay people's bail, and then they connect them to the services they may need, um, some of the wraparound services that people need, the basic needs that are going unmet. Um, to try to sort of work with connecting them to those services um, and then also obviously remind them about their court dates um, until their cases close. So that's the way that it operates at the local level. The infrastructure that we have is we have a central team and that team houses um, a data team, a communications team, a training team, a finance team, right? And people that will support the local site so that we're not recreating 21 different not-for-profits across the country. In fact, what we're doing is trying to create a very lean organization that has a lot of flexibility and can pivot quite quickly with changes on the ground um, to open up sites and exit sites when the time comes because it's all supported by the central team. And so you don't have to build infrastructure in 21 places. You simply have this infrastructure that can support all 21 sites. And as we expand and continue to build our portfolio, that infrastructure can actually support those new sites as well. And what happens the... I'm, I'm sure that one of the worst case scenarios that you all have dreamed up is when you pay the bail and somebody gets out and commits another crime. Has that happened? So it has happened. You know, since we launched in 2018, we have done over 11,000 bailouts across the country. And we have had a handful of situations where somebody was bailed out um, and committed another crime that harmed somebody else. And that is certainly a moment where we all reflect. Um, those moments can be really heartbreaking. We take them quite seriously. Um, but it's important to remember that they are the very rare exception. And we have to stay grounded in what we usually see, not what happens in the unusual circumstance. And yes, we try to learn from those circumstances, but generally that is about a community um, release plan did not have the services that that person needed to be supported. Um, and so we try when we're doing individualized assessments of every client to think about what services do people need to be connected to so that they can be supported during the life of the case and thrive. Um, but those moments are very hard and we learn from them. Um, but we always try to stay grounded in also thinking about how they are the very, very rare exception. So much in our criminal legal system and our policy in the criminal legal system has been driven by a narrative of fear. And that is another way that when we think about those exceptions, and they're heartbreaking, right? But we try to keep ourselves grounded in the data. Um, and that's not because we don't understand there's real human beings involved, but it is because to keep rational, to understand what's actually happening, you have to keep your feet on the ground and recognize there were 11,000 people that we were able to bail out. And the overwhelming majority of time, people not only went home, but they thrived and they had better outcomes and they had better case outcomes and better outcomes for their lives. 
Um, and that's what we try to stay grounded in in those very, very hard moments. Some newsrooms are beginning to refuse to publish mugshots of people arrested and even referring <clears throat> or even referring to them as suspects in some cases. What has been the impact of media and public perception on how difficult it has been to get bail reform? So I would say, I mean, whenever I talk about this, I always like to say, you know, when we think about what got us to where we are, right? What is it that makes us the number one incarcerator in the world, right? What is it that turned us into a place where that disproportionality of our criminal legal system has fallen on the backs of black and brown men and women from low-income communities around this country? How did we get to the place where uh, the police um, are militarized? How did we get to the place where the police are seen as dangerous entities in low-income communities, right? How, how did we get here? Um, I think about that all the time. Um, I, I think about the ways in which um, not only has our legacy of slavery and Jim Crow led and allowed us to get to mass incarceration, and there's lots of responsibility and to be spread around, but there is also this media piece that's really important. Um, and I, what I say to people is, if you really want to get away from recreating terrible systems, turn your television off when law and order comes on. Turn your television off when Criminal Minds comes on, right? Those shows have driven a narrative of fear in this country where people actually think, A, that's what the criminal legal system looks like, but B, and more importantly, that the kinds of, you know, horrible scenarios those stories, you know, love to dream up are always the exceptions, but it allows people to believe that is the rule, that that's most of the people in the criminal legal system are scary and dangerous and going to do terrible things when in fact, very few people in the criminal legal system fall into that category. And uh, most people that have been coming into the criminal legal system for decades in this country are being prosecuted for crimes and conduct that's going on in white affluent communities, but has simply never been policed. Um, and so that's important to remember, but when there's a cultural moment like we're in now, and I hear that, you know, shows like Cops are being pulled from the air, um, I have a lot of hope because I think it has infected our brains and the way we think about this and the way we see this issue. Um, it has perpetuated fear and that fear is deeply racialized. It is, it is perpetuated that kind of structural institutional racism that we see in every aspect of our country. And so the idea that people would stop, you know, publishing a mugshot um, is a great first step, right? And now we really have to all stand up and speak out and say, look, you know, we actually want to see shows that are positive, right? We actually want to see shows that reflect reality, not shows that continue to push a narrative of fear. Because when we're afraid, we will justify doing almost anything to human beings. When people make us scared enough, right? We justify horrendous things. We justify Guantanamo. We justify the death penalty, right? We justify holding people in jail cells before they've been convicted of anything simply because they don't have enough money to pay their cash bail. And so that fear is really palpable and really important for us to get a handle on um, and to immunize ourselves against. And one of the ways to do that is uh, media to take some responsibility for the images they have been perpetuating for decades. Robin Steinberg is founder and CEO of The Bail Project, and you can text a question for her to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. I'm Dan Malthrop. You're with the City Club Friday Forum. Robin, from our friends at Legal Aid, a strong community partner of the City Club and of uh, bail reform, 
Please ask Robin to comment on civil fines and fees that have created modern-day debtors' prison systems. How can that movement yeah. and eff- that, that effort join with bail reform? So I think about the criminal legal system, if you think about it as a tapestry, right, you can pull at almost any thread and what you're going to see um, are racial and economic disparities at every single turn, whether it's policing or bail setting or fines and fees or mass incarceration, it's going to be present everywhere. Fines and fees are directly related to bail. It, It creates the exact same dynamic, right? It is extracting money, right, from people that can barely make ends meet. Um, can and you when they take a, can you pause for a second and explain sure. what they are and mm-hmm. how and and how expensive they can be because I think there are for people who haven't oh. uh, interacted with the criminal justice system they may not really understand the what they're the scale of what you're talking about. Sure. So fines and fees vary from place to place, right? Because criminal justice is very local. But in the general, what you see is that when people are convicted, even of minor crimes, right, fines can be imposed as part of the sentence and fees are imposed. And those fees actually are used often to prop up different parts of the criminal legal system, right? So the fee may go to the clerk, a fee may go to the prosecutor's office, right? And then those fines and fees are incredibly onerous. Um, so you, your case is over, but now you have $1,000 worth of fines and fees that you're responsible for paying. And as hard as you try, right, you keep trying to keep up with that, you can't. And when you can't, a warrant gets issued for your arrest and you can be put back in jail for the failure to pay simply because you didn't have enough money. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's just like the cash bail system. Um, and so, and those fines and fees are really, you know, extracting the few resources that folks in low-income communities have, right, to begin with. And so the other thing that happens is then you not only go to jail, you may then be released again. So either you do jail time, in which case your life, again, is destroyed um, or put into um, disarray and whatever you had in place becomes destabilized, or you can be released and now in many jurisdictions, a new fine or fee is added onto the original one you had because they had to arrest you and you were now in jail. So now you've got more fines and fees you're facing. So when I was working in Oklahoma at Still She Rises, we saw women down there who were paying off fines and fees that they had from criminal cases that they got 10 years ago. And they were still struggling to pay those fines and fees. And of course, it creates incredible barriers for people to get out from under that kind of debt and to move forward and to have economic mobility and to be able to provide for their families, right? So it is yet another way um, that the system, you know, prioritizes, um, you know, pulling money from the people who can least afford it to prop up these systems where affluent people can simply go into the system, pay their bail, pay their fines and fees and never look back. Um, and people without those resources will be burdened by those fines and fees, you know, for years and in some cases for decades. And they may even wind up being incarcerated because they can't pay. And just to connect all of those dots, often that happens when somebody is, in fact, innocent, has pleaded guilty to something just so they can get out uh, out of jail earlier or get back with their family. And then they're still assessed those fines and fees for um, for whatever reason, and then they may be carrying that burden for years as well. And as I understand That's right. it, or, I was just going to add that, as I understand it, there are places in America right now where um, these people who are in in debt to the municipality, the courts, are then not only incarcerated, but are then also sort of farmed out as as labor, 
and earning at very low wages to pay back, to quote, pay back what they quote owe. Yeah, there seems to be almost no limit to the amount of unconscionable, immoral things we're willing to do in our criminal legal system as it exists today. And that's just another way that we perpetuate that. And again, that falls on the backs of black communities and low income communities um, specifically. Another question from our listening audience. Do you have a comment on the arrest of Anthony Bodie, your employee? You know, I, I, it's, it's Anthony's story to tell. Um, and so I don't want to um, replace his voice in any way. But what I would say is um, it, it is an example of um, a system of policing where racism is deeply embedded um, you know, Anthony was arrested as he was paying bail for somebody as part of his job, um, but it was after curfew. And as he was being arrested, there's a white woman across the street walking her dog who's out after curfew, who's not being arrested. And it is another example of, I think, what America is finally waking up to, um, which is the systemic racism that is so much a part of our criminal legal system, so much a part of our policing um, that, you know, at this moment in time, I hope that, you know, nobody can look away from that again. Um, so, but Anthony um, will tell his story and um, we obviously at the Bell Project support everything he does. Another question from our audience and one that will probably be very gratifying to you, is there a place for volunteers at the Bell Project? There is a place for volunteers at the Bell Project, of course. Um, we welcome any kind of support, um, volunteers, checks, um, you know, phone calls with good ideas, any, any support that any local community or nationally uh, people want to give, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Um, as you were saying, checks and, and all sorts of other things, I was almost going to equip suitcases of cash, uh, for, particularly for your friends in Oklahoma. Yeah, so um, you're referring to a story that I, I told you about in, you know, jurisdictions operate their bail systems differently. And one of the things that's been most striking to me in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is the requirement that bail must be paid in actual cash, which means that our bail disruptors in Tulsa, Oklahoma, have to go to a bank, pull out dollar bills. They have to then go to the jail and pay at the window in the jail with dollar bills. So they may actually have to have a suitcase with thousands of dollars simply because the system has refused to allow us to pay bail um, with cashier's checks or online or with credit cards or any other way. It's, again, another way that these archaic systems just refuse to change. Um, so we're working on that as we speak. Um, but, yeah, that is certainly one of the more... Um, you know, archaic systems that remain in place. Another question for you is, it would be interesting to hear about ways your work has been disrupted in other places. Do bail disruptors get harassed or stonewalled? Um, you know, our bail disruptors really are the heart and soul of the bail project. Um, they are smart, passionate, dedicated, incredible leaders in their own communities. And when they come up against obstacles, um, they pretty much know how to move through those obstacles. And sometimes that may be sitting down and having a cup of coffee with somebody. And sometimes that may be, you know, an advocacy strategy. Um, but they are really um, well situated because of their 
um, abilities and passion and belief in this work and belief in bringing people home to move through the other obstacles that we face. And, you know, some of the things we see, we just have to move around the obstacles. It's like anything else, right? Somebody throws something up in front of you, you figure out a way to move around it as best you can um, to do the work that you're committed to doing and getting home as many people as you can and connecting them to the services that they might need in their community. Could you talk about the ways that judges, particularly here in Cuyahoga County, um, have responded to your disruptors and, and to the bail project itself? Um, so there aren't monolithic judges, right? There's not, there's not, I can't say all judges do everything, right? Judges are individuals, just like police officers are individuals, right? Just like prosecutors are individuals. They are all operating in systems that are deeply flawed and that, you know, obviously reflect a long history of racism in this country. Um, you know, judges, some of them have responded very well, some of them not so well, right? Um, system players, some have responded well, some not so well, but we're working on that, right? We recognize that we're a new project. Um, we're working really hard to bring partners to the table to explain the work that we're doing um, and how it's actually not only uh, good for people to be home while their cases are pending, but how that actually helps all of us. Um, how that starts to change the face of what justice looks like, um, how it begins to eliminate the unfairness and the systemic racism that we see in the system. Um, it is significant to note that, you know, of the bailouts that we have done in Cleveland thus far, 87% of the people we have bailed out are black. Um, but 53% of the population in Cleveland is black. So you can see the disparity and the um, impact that cash bail has on black residents in Cleveland, right? And we're trying to do something about that. Um, you know, Anthony and Kareem have bailed out about 213 people since launching and have incredible results, right? 95% of clients make, you know, the clients make 95% of their court dates. Um, there's 111 cases that have closed. Um, and as you said earlier, and a third of those cases have been dismissed entirely. Um, and so they're doing incredible work. And I think systems players, even if they might have been suspicious at first, I think will grow to understand how we really are working along with our systems actors and organizers in the community and other not-for-profits working towards a more just system, a more fair system, a system that is devoid of the kind of racism that we've seen for generations. Um, and I'm confident that, you know, that will happen over time, um, you know, and, and that we'll be able to continue to do our work until maybe someday um, we can work with policymakers in, you know, eliminating cash bail. Do, does the bail project take everybody who asks for help? So we do individualized assessments, right? We, we think about this very carefully. Um, we really look at bails at, in the range of $5,000 or less. Um, and we did that as um, a sort of strategy to be able to reach as many people as possible. Um, and so that's one of the things that we look at. But the other thing we look at is the individual needs a client may have, right? Can we actually connect clients to what they may need when they come out? Is there an effective way to notify somebody? Is there a way to remind them of their court date? Um, and the, the sad fact is, right, that um, you know, low-income communities and particularly communities of color have been so under-resourced for so long. There's been so little investment in those communities that a lot of the times the infrastructure for support isn't there yet. It doesn't exist yet, right? There isn't the treatment that we need. There isn't the mental health services that communities need, right? There aren't 
uh, things in place to support people. And sometimes in those situations, we can't bail somebody out when we think that bailing them out is going to put them in harm's way or somebody else's um, way. And we're very careful about that and think about that seriously. Um, but that really is about a lack of investment in communities um, and a lack of investment in low-income communities in creating the kinds of services and supports and basic needs that need to be met. This is a, a really interesting uh, question here. The, our listener writes, I'm interested in bringing loved ones into this dialogue, but I'm unsure how to do so effectively. What have you found to be the most effective ways to start a productive dialogue with individuals with no real understanding or previous knowledge of the system? Oh, that's such a lovely question. Isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think these conversations should be happening around kitchen tables all over the country. And I think one of the things um, that I would suggest, besides turning off your television and stop watching those terrible shows, except for the rare exceptions of shows that actually show the reality of the criminal legal system, and there are a couple of those, um, that, you know, one of the things to remember is um, you may think you don't know people that the criminal legal system has touched, but I promise you that you do. Um, and, I, and what we know from a Pew study a few years ago is that one out of two American families in this country have have a loved one booked into a local jail at some point. So I promise you, you know somebody who's been impacted by this. You may not know it, they may not tell you, um, but I promise you this is a bigger problem that you think. But really what I would say is what our legal system looks like, right? This is my way in sometimes. What our legal system looks like is a reflection of our values. It is a reflection of each and every one of us. And so when you think about what's, how this system is operating, we have to all remember it's operating in our names, right? When prosecutors get up in courtrooms and they say, I'm here for the people of the state of Ohio, they are speaking in all of our names. And what they do and how they operate and how that impacts some communities and not others is a responsibility that we all own. So I try to sort of think about this as, you know, how a country's legal system operates says everything about the values that we want to hold out as being ours. Uh, and in America, I like to think that the value that we say about ourselves could someday be real, which is that we believe in the presumption of innocence, that we believe that equal justice should be provided to everybody, regardless of race or class, uh, that we believe our system is fair, that we believe we operate with humanity and dignity and respect and, um, and, and love, and, um, and that we believe our criminal legal system should be restorative, not just punitive. Um, and so if you begin to have those bigger conversations, maybe you can drill it down to cash bail at some point. Um, but it's a really a much larger issue about who we are as Americans and what we get to say about ourselves and what we don't get to say about ourselves when a system operates the way that this criminal legal system does. Uh, we're just about at the end, but I wanted to um, clarify one thing, which is that you, with two, 213 bail recipients um, having having been served over the last nine months, you obviously have mm -hmm. sufficient funds in the in the revolving bail fund, but you do have two full-time employees here, and that's a different operational right. need. So, uh, a, a, which I, I add as a fellow nonprofit fundraiser, you need money to support that. 
Thank you for that. We do, of course, we do have a national revolving bail fund and that money gets used and it gets dispersed to, you know, to Cleveland and other jurisdictions that we're operating in on an as needed basis, depending on how many bailouts need to be done. And part of that revolving bail fund will go to the protesters. But that revolving bail fund has been there for two and a half years. It will go on long after this moment um, to bail people out charged in the protest or otherwise. But yes, we always have to fundraise for the operational part of the organization because that does doesn't revolve, right? That goes to supporting incredible people who work on the ground to do this work, like Anthony and Kareem in Cleveland. Um, and that's what we raise money for, too, is for the operations to be able to continue and to support our incredible team of bailout disruptors around the country. Robin Steinberg is founder and CEO of The Bail Project, which, as I said, has been working in Cleveland for uh, about nine months now. And Robin, I just want to thank you for your time today, and I want to thank you uh, for your work here in Cleveland and across the country, and, and thank you for working to make our criminal justice system more just. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Our forum today is sponsored by City Club members Holly and Rob Martins. Our community partners include the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, Lutheran Metropolitan Ministries, and Towards Employment. We appreciate their support of City Club programming. Our virtual forums are sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gund Foundation, Key Bank, Nordson, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC, along with the many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting our work when you make a contribution online or become a member at cityclub.org. We are continuing to present our forums virtually and digitally online through this time, either here from the IdeaStream studios or on other virtual platforms at cityclub.org. Please join us next Friday, June 19th, when we talk with Jamil Smith, senior writer for Rolling Stone, and Erica Smith, columnist for the Los Angeles Times, about the specific burdens and work as, a black, as black journalists in the time, a time of crisis. If you have other ideas about topics or speakers we should feature while we are during this pandemic and presenting virtual forums, we're at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong, stay healthy, and stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.